The Israelites have been journeying in the wilderness for about three months now. Uh, the ten plagues that we've read about in Egypt, that was over a year ago. Uh, they have crossed the Red Sea, and it's been about three months. They've journeyed in the wilderness for about three months, and they have arrived at a mountain called Sinai. Now, when they arrive at the mountain of Sinai, Exodus 20, God himself comes down to the people, and he speaks to them the Ten Commandments. The people there on that mountain, they hear the audible voice of God, they feel the terror of God, and they respond positively. They say, yes, we will obey. Everything you have said, we will do, but they have one request, and that request is, God, please don't speak to us. We are afraid. Speak only through Moses. And so what happens is Moses then goes up to Mount Sinai, and there he receives the Book of the Covenant. That's the laws dealing with social justice that we saw a few weeks ago. After having received that, Moses comes back down, and he reads all of these laws regarding how to treat widows, uh, how to treat um, uh, sojourners, how to treat the refugee, and the people respond positively again. They say, yes, we will do all of those things. Third time, Moses goes up again. And this time, he's receiving the laws concerning the tabernacle, what we looked at last week. Moses is there for about 40 nights, 40 days. But then the people start to get afraid. They start to become worried. They think, okay, this guy Moses, he's not going to come back. And so, they turn to Aaron, Moses' older brother. Aaron has no idea what to do, and so in their confusion, in their ignorance, they create an idol. They create this golden calf. And there, at the foot of the mountain, where God himself met with his people, the Israelites engage in false worship. They engage in idolatry. This story that we've just read in its entirety, Exodus 32, tells us about idolatry. If Genesis 3 tells us about the root and the beginning of sin, Exodus 32 teaches us about the expression of sin, how it's made manifest through idolatry. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to go through this passage. I want to look at Exodus 32, and uh, I want to examine it to see what it teaches us about idolatry how it reveals the attitudes of our hearts towards God. Now, before we get into this passage specifically, we have to have a working definition of idolatry. So, what is an idol? Uh, many people have taken a stab at this and have tried defining what idols are. Uh, I think the best so far was by a man named Martin Luther many, many years ago. Martin Luther said this. He said, idols are anything, anything outside of God that your heart clings to, and that your heart relies upon for ultimate significance. This is what an idol is. And so let's go through today's passage, and we'll explore some of the characteristics of, an, of idolatry. What, what does idolatry look like? What does an idol look like? So the first point that I want to make is this. Idolatry is inadvertent. Idolatry is inadvertent. This story, Exodus 32, doesn't begin with the people waking up one morning and devising a plan or devising some, some master plan. 
about how they are going to create an idol and worship it. No, the story begins in a very normal and human way. The people wake up one morning and they notice, hey, Moses hasn't been around for a long time. And they start to worry. They don't know if Moses was eaten by an animal. And they start to worry because without Moses, they have no access to God. That worry soon turns to fear. They become fearful because they don't know their way around the wilderness. They have no leader. They have no idea where they're going. And so the people in haste, in worry, and in fear, they act instinctively and they create this idol. Idolatry is always almost, is almost always inadvertent. People don't wake up in the morning. You and I, we don't wake up in the morning thinking, I'm going to create an idol today. No, instead, idolatry happens when people simply forget about God and they respond out of fear, out of their insecurities, out of their emptiness. I mean, think about the idols in your life. You didn't meticulously design your idol. You didn't carefully curate your idol. No, you just threw in your fears, your insecurities, your worries, your anxieties, your pride. And just like this golden calf, out came your idol. Look at how Aaron describes it. He says this. So I said to them, let anyone who uh, have gold take it off. And so they gave it to me, and I just threw it in the fire, and out came this Yeah, no one begins by saying, you know what, I'm going to worship at the feet of money. No, it begins with fears about finances or security of the future. No one says, I'm going to worship my relationships. No, it starts with being afraid of what people think about you, how people perceive you. It starts with desperately wanting to be liked by others. And as all of these fears and anxieties and insecurities get mixed, out comes your idol. No one says, I'm going to make family my idol. When you had your child at the hospital and you, and you held him or her for the first time, you didn't say, oh, my king. No. You have a family, and the affirmation or the security that you get from your family, it, it starts to define you more and more and more and more where you get to a point where you cannot identify yourself apart from your family. And that becomes your idol. No one starts their career by saying, my career is going to be my God. You see, John Calvin is right when he says that our hearts are idol factories idol factories. In other words, our hearts are not idol designers, okay, who work in studios and laboratories carefully curating these idols. No, it's a factory. Our hearts just automatically mass produces these idols. Quite often, idol manufacturing is inadvertent. It starts with the deeper emotions in our hearts, the fears that we have, and as all of these things just get mixed in, out comes this idol. So we find that idolatry is inadvertent. Second thing, uh, idolatry is imitation. 
What do I mean by that? If we look at verses 4 to 6, here, or 4 to 5, here's what uh, it says. Um, and they said, these are the people after they have created the calf, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, when Moses saw this, or when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. You see what's going on here? The people didn't create this idol and say, here is this new God, here is this idol. No, they create this calf, and what do they say? They say, here is the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Tomorrow we will have a feast for the Lord. Once again, the people, they're not looking to make an idol per se. They just make this golden calf and they say, look, this is the God who saved you. You know what idolatry is? Idolatry isn't rejecting God. Idolatry is replacing God. Idolatry isn't eliminating God. It's actually exchanging God. See, idolatry is just replacing God with something similar, with something close, with something that can look and feel like God. Idolatry is replacing God with something that might promise the same exact things. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, why would the people think this golden calf is God? Well, just a little cultural background. In the ancient Near East, most gods were represented by a golden statue of some sort of animal. And the ancients thought that an animal statue was the god's mode of transportation. In other words, by creating this calf or horse or whatever animal, they thought that they were inviting and invoking that specific god to come. Come, God. Come ride on this chariot. Come. Now, we have to remember, what's going on right before Exodus 32? Moses, he's at the top of the mountain, and he's receiving instructions on how to build the tabernacle. And what was the tabernacle? It was the place where God was going to meet with his people. You see, God had designed a place. He had designated a place and a method for how he was going to meet with his people, how he was going to engage his people in worship. But instead, what do the people do? They resort to idolatry. They create this calf that's strangely or ironically made with the same material. It's made out of gold, the same exact material. But in the end, this calf is not the real thing. It is imitating what God is doing. You know, if you go to grocery stores nowadays, uh, they are, grocery stores now are just filled with imitation foods, okay? Or shall I, shall I say, alternative foods. For those who don't eat meat, there is imitation meat. Uh, for those who are staying away from carbs, there are things like cauliflower rice, for those who don't eat sugar, there are sweeteners. And I would say some of these alternatives, as I've tried them, are okay. But others miss the mark so bad. They are really, really bad imitations. For example, a few weeks back, I went to the grocery store and there was a sale 
on alternative ice cream. It was a non-dairy ice cream made from coconut milk. It was on sale, a company called Nada Moo. It looked like ice cream. It felt like ice cream. It cost more than ice cream, but it was on sale. So I thought, okay, we'll get it. We bought it. Our two boys come home from school one day. They wanted a snack, so I nudged them in that direction. I said, hey, here, try this new ice cream. And I watched from afar to see what their reaction would be. And I didn't try it yet, because that's what children are for. Have them try it first. <laughs> so the boys come, they take their bowls and their ice cream scoop, and they scoop out the ice cream. They took their first bite, and the first words out of their mouths were, this isn't ice cream. <laughs> not a moo, whatever it is, it is not an ice cream. It's not. You know, I've had bagels with imitation butter called margarine. It was not the real thing. Their slogan, I cannot believe it's not butter, should be replaced with, I can't believe someone thinks this is close to butter. <laughs> Imitation crab is not crab. A cheesesteak outside Philly is not a cheesesteak. <laughs> you know, before coming to uh, Philadelphia all my life, I have to admit, I've had imitation cheesesteak. Do you know how I know? Because outside of Philly, it's called Philly cheesesteak. It's uh, not the same bread, not the same meat, not the same rude guy over the counter taking your order. <laughs> but when I came to Philly, I remember I ordered a cheesesteak, and uh, I went to the guy and I said, hey, can I have a Philly cheesesteak? And the guy looked at me strangely, and he said, we don't call it a Philly cheesesteak around here, son. Very rudely. We just call it a cheesesteak. And I was this close to snapping back and say, yeah, you know what? Well, no one else in the world eats your tomato pies, okay? I call that lazy pizza. <laughs> I was this close. But I, but I have to say, if you've had a cheesesteak in Philly, you'll know that Philly cheesesteak outside is just an imitation. It looks like a Philly cheesesteak, it might smell like it, but it certainly doesn't deliver in the same way. See, this is what idolatry is like. Idols masquerade around and they pretend to be like God. Idols imitate the divine. They offer the same promises and they promise the same results. And you might even think, hey, what's the difference? They're both promising the same thing. They, they are both promising to deliver the same exact thing. But the difference between the true and living God and an idol, the differences are ocean-wide. One is creator, the other is creation. One loves you and cares for you and enters into a real relationship with you, but on the other hand, idols don't love you. Idols only use you. There's a, uh, a poem, a well-known poem by uh, Nicholas McDonald, and I want to read this for you. It says this. I'm not sure if you can make it out, but let me read it. It says this. Hello, I'm an idol. Don't be afraid. It's just me. I notice you're turned off by my name, idol. 
It's okay, I get that a lot. Allow me to rename myself. I'm your family, your bank account, your sex life, the people who accept you, your career, your self-image, your ideal spouse, your law-keeping. I'm whatever you want me to be. I'm what you think about while you drive on the freeway. I'm your anxiety when you lay your head on the pillow. I'm where you turn when you need comfort. I'm what your future cannot live without. When you lose me, you're nothing. When you have me, you're the center of existence. You look up to those who have me. You look down on those who don't. You're controlled by those who offer me, and you're furious at those who keep you from me. When I make a suggestion, you're compelled. When you cannot gratify me, I consume you. No, I cannot see you or hear you or speak back to you, but that's what you like about me. No, I'm never quite what you think I am, but that's why you keep coming back. And no, I don't love you, but I'm there for you whenever you need me. What am I? I think you know by now. You tell me. This poem, well written, um, is really describing the nature and the characteristics of an idol. Idolatry is, is an, an idol is very, very close to God. It imitates and mimics God. It promises almost the exact same thing. But the differences are oceans wide. So we find idolatry uh, is imitation. The third we find here is idolatry results in impersonation. If you look at the story, uh, something very interesting goes on. Look at here, uh, Exodus 32, 25. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. This is how uh, the people are described. It describes the people as breaking loose. Right, what do you think about breaking loose. Do you describe people as breaking loose? It's probably this idea of an animal, the metaphor of an animal breaking loose from their chain. Exodus 32, 8 says this, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. These, these people have turned aside. All throughout this passage, God describes them as a stiff-necked people, people whose necks don't move, right? And what does that remind you of? What does that remind you of? The golden calf. Look at what Hosea says in 4.16. He says this, like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? What's going on here? The Lord, he's describing Israel as a calf, as a stupid heifer. And then what happens in Exodus 32, 26, Moses, he stands at the gate and he starts to call all the people to his side. He starts to gather them. You see, the picture that's going on here is as the Israelites create this golden calf and they start to worship it, what happens is the people start to become like this golden calf. They start to become stupid and stubborn like heifers. They've become like this young calf running wild, out of control. And this passage 
highlights an important truth that Scripture time and time again speaks of, and it's this. You will become what you worship. You will become exactly like what you worship. Psalm 115, I think, uh, makes this clear. It says this, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. And look at this. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. You know, the world tells us you are what you eat. Nowadays, a more popular saying is you are what you consume. Whatever you consume in the media or in news, you are what you consume. But the Bible actually tells us this. You become what you worship. What you adore, what you value most, what you find greatest pleasure in, you will become just like that. That's why those who worship the true living God, it just doesn't end with worship, but what happens? It leads to conforming, where that person becomes more and more like God. And so Scripture highlights this important truth, that adoration leads to adaptation. Whatever it is that you worship, you will become just like that. We remember when we were young, whoever we looked up to, whoever we adored. Inadvertently, we started to take on that person's characteristics. We started to walk like that person, talk like that person, become like that person. For those of you who are struggling with behavioral change, trying to change the way you act, I'd say this. Don't start with the behavior, but change the object of your worship. Think about what it is that you are worshiping. N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, writes this, when human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. One of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. What's more, you reflect what you worship, not only back to the object itself, but also outward to the world around. Those who worship money, increasingly define themselves in terms of it and increasingly treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers rather than human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, their preferences, their practices, their past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sexual objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. So friends, idolatry is usually inadvertent. Uh, Idols imitate well God. And through idolatry, through worship, we will impersonate. These are some important things about idolatry that we find in today's passage. As we continue on, the story goes and... um, when the Lord finds that the people are engaging in idolatry, he says, okay, Moses, I want you to step back. I'm going to destroy them. And and God says this, I'm going to destroy the people, but I will make a great nation of you. In other words, God is saying, I'm going to start all over again. I cannot deal with these people. 
Now, this language is quite similar to Genesis 12, where God is promising to make a great nation out of Abraham. And when God says, hey, Moses, turn aside. These people have forgotten me, and I'm going to destroy them. Moses, he understands what God is going to do. And he says this, God, you cannot. You cannot. And what Moses does here as he stands before God and the people, he acts as a mediator, and he says this, God, you promised, you promised to keep your covenant. You cannot do this. 99% of the time in the Bible, 99% of the time, it's always a prophet or mediator going to the people and saying, you have to remember God's promise. This is the one rare occasion in the Bible where the prophet actually goes to God and says, no, God, you have to remember your promise. 99% of the time in the Bible, it's always the prophets going to the people and saying, relent, turn, turn away. This is the one time where you find a prophet going to God and saying, God, you have to turn. You have to turn from your anger. Moses goes to God and he says, listen, if you break your promise, do you know what's going to happen? And so God, he relents, he turns, and Moses goes down to the mountain, as we've read, and the next day, interestingly, this is what Moses says to his people. He says this, you've sinned a great sin, now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And then Moses goes up and he says, Alas, this people have sinned the great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sins, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses, the next day, to make atonement for sin, he goes up to the mountain and he offers himself. He says, God, to make atonement for sin, Take my life. But God says, no, I cannot do that. He says, I will not accept you as an atonement. Do you know why? It's because God here had in mind, in fact, another mediator. Exodus 32 and Moses' mediation is an accurate picture, depiction of the gospel, of Jesus who will stand before God and man. Jesus, who will be that mediator, who actually offers himself up and a sacrifice that God would actually accept for our idolatrous sins. Exodus 32 is an accurate picture of how much sin grieves God, of how much idolatry grieves God. Interestingly, it's, you know, all throughout the Bible, God says, you are my people, you are my people, you are my people. But in Exodus 32, when the people engage in idolatry, he tells Moses, your people. He says, they're not my people anymore. They rejected me, and I'm going to reject them. But through Moses, his mediating work, we see that despite our sins, despite our idolatry, through the complete and perfect work of Jesus, our mediator. God atones for our sins. God, he forgives us. 
And through this mediator, Jesus, we can turn from idolatry and find ultimate significance and worth in him. While the people continue to engage in idolatry, it's through Moses that the people can ultimately turn around and seek the true and living God. Let me just end with uh, this uh, illustration. I think it might be helpful. Uh, There was a profound story that came out, uh, received critical acclaim. It was, uh, you know, hailed as the story of the century. It was a masterpiece. I'm not sure if you know what I'm referring to, but it's uh, the Minions. Uh, It's, it's, I think, a prelude uh, for the Despicable Me uh, series, but uh, these small uh, yellow creatures, and, uh, oh, by the way, on a side note, uh, my, my youngest son, Brooklyn, he was only saying mommy, 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 right? He wasn't saying daddy. And so what I did was uh, I, I made him watch the Minions banana song. I just kept turning that on, ba, 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 ba. And he just kept imitating it, imitating it, and, and he finally learned how to say ba-ba, uh, which I think means appa, or <laughs> father in Korean. So that was my way. So parents, those of you who want to teach your children how to say ba-ba uh, or father, uh, show them the Minion uh, banana song. Just keep that on, on repeat. Uh, but it, the Minion story is actually a really interesting story. These yellow creatures who seem to have um, an infinite amount of abilities and gifts. They're able to build cities, pyr- pyramids. They're able to do so much. They're crafty. They're creative. They can do everything. However, the story begins with them feeling purposeless. They have no drive in life. They are depressed. Why? Because they have no master to serve. They have no master. And so they they go on this long, long journey uh, to find the perfect master that they can give their full allegiance to. They go to uh, an evil convention where all the evil uh, people come and they showcase their gifts and they finally find this one woman, uh, Scarlet Overkill, I believe her name is Scarlet Overkill. They think, okay, this is the master that we can serve. This is the master we can give ourselves to. But uh, there's tension between the two. While the minions are trying to faithfully give their their allegiance and their service to this master, this master uh, feels threatened by the minions. Uh, There's this uh, scene where the minion pulls out a sword, uh, King Arthur's sword, and he becomes king and overlord thinks, okay, the minions are just using me. And all throughout there's this tension, who's using who? Who's really in it for what? And this, 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 this idea of the minions worshiping and serving this, this, uh, this, this evil um, overlord, there's this tension. And it's actually quite crushing to each of them. They never feel fully satisfied. One is feeling like they're used. The other is feeling unfulfilled. It's only until the minions they find their rightful master. Gru, I think his name is. That they understand, yeah, why they were created, why they were made, and who they were made to serve. Friends, I don't know um, which idol you are worshiping or what you are giving your full allegiance to, what you are finding your ultimate significance and worth in. But I implore you this morning that the only person who is worthy of your full devotion and your full allegiance is our creator God. 
and through the mediating work of Jesus, our Savior. He turns us from our idolatrous ways, and he calls us to come back, to come back and worship the true and living God who actually genuinely loves us and he cares for us. And so this morning, would you heed to the words of the prophets time and time again to cast your idols aside, to lay down whatever it is that you are finding your ultimate significance in, to lay down whatever it is you are becoming like, and would you turn to Christ, our Savior? Join me in prayer at this time.